1: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Rabbi, Rabbi Mark Glickman, who has served at congregations in Ohio, Washington State, Colorado, Louisiana, and now in Calgary. He's here to talk about his new book, Stolen Words The Nazi Plunder of Jewish Books, published in 2016 by the Jewish Publication Society in association with the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, thanks very much for being with us today.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. So first off, how did you come to write this book? Well, several years ago, I um, I began collecting old Jewish books. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a huge collection, but I became sort of a poor man's collector of Jewish books. And I saw on eBay a book for sale that was a, a, an 18th century volume of Jewish legal Material. It was excerpts from the Talmud, actually, called Hilchot Al-Fasi, the, the laws of Rabbi Al-Fasi. And so I ordered that online via eBay. And when it came, I opened the book up with great excitement. And on the inside front cover of the book, I saw there was a book plate that said um, uh, Jewish Cultural Reconstruction. And I was puzzled by this book plate. I hadn't ever heard of Jewish Cultural Reconstruction. So I did Mm -hmm. what rabbis have done when faced with such puzzles, such mysteries throughout history. I Googled it. And Mm -hmm. I found out that Jewish Cultural Reconstruction was an organization that was uh, assigned the task of uh, distributing looted material, looted cultural material from the Holocaust after World War II. And I was able to surmise that this book I had uh, ordered, without my knowing it, was a book that the Nazis had looted from some Jewish library somewhere in Europe during the war and at the end of the war it ended up in in, uh, allied hands and now was in my hands. And I was uh, intrigued by the story. I had known that The Nazis burned books before the war. I didn't know that they saved Jewish books during their reign. And so I was intrigued by the story and I looked into it further. And what resulted was the book that I wrote.
1: Fantastic. All right. So we'll definitely um, get into a lot of those topics um, throughout the interview. Um, Just starting off in your first chapter, you take us on a virtual tour of a Jewish library in Vilna in 1939. Um, And this chapter also becomes a mini history of Jewish books and Jewish writing. Can you tell us a bit about this library and a bit about the history of the books that it contained? This was
0: the Strachan Library in Vilna, and it was a library that was named after its founder, Matthew Strachan, but had become a a community library that people were donating to and by the time of the war it had tens of thousands of volumes it was located in vilna which was a hub of jewish cultural activity with all kinds of libraries and uh, intellectual societies and jewish theater and jewish music of, of all kinds and uh, this was one of the major cultural centers the strashen library and it existed into the the war it was event- eventually of course taken over by the nazis when they took over vilna but uh up up until that that time it was a major literary center for vilna and the surrounding region
1: Great. and 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 a bit about the the, the books that it that it contained oh, and it, the history of um Yeah, of what sort of Jewish books there were where did they come from what were they so it was
0: originally the private the the private collection of Matthew Strashun, and uh, and it contained books of all different kinds they they contained not only Jewish legal material and classical Jewish literature but also novels and academic books and in all kinds of European languages the books were some of them were in Hebrew some were in Yiddish many were in local European languages like Russian and Polish it it um, it, it, it was used by uh, adults and by children alike. There was there was children's material there as well. So it, it was really just a, a vast collection of all kinds of books that would be of use to Jews in in this very intellectually cosmopolitan community of Vilna.
1: Great. So um, in the next chapter. You- chapters, you examine the history of the destruction and censorship of Jewish books. Tell us a bit about this history and also how the Nazis' approach to Jewish books um, was quite different. Right.
0: So throughout history, other people, particularly Christians, have been very uh, obsessed with the with. Jewish written material, and from uh, from the mid from the Middle Ages on, or in, actually from before that, but particularly beginning in the Middle Ages, the, the Church would often order uh, the Talmud and other Jewish books to be burned, to be consigned to flames. There was a um, belief that it, that the Talmud and other Jewish books contained anti Christian literature, literature that was designed to um, uh, to subvert the teachings of the church, there were many uh, Jews, particularly in Spain, or actually there were many non-Jews who had once been Jews, people who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, who helped the church, quote unquote, identify um, these so-called uh, subversive anti-Christian polemical passages in the Talmud. And often the Talmud would be consigned to flames and sometimes thousands and thousands and thousands of of editions of the Talmud and other Jewish books were burned in various communities and various times throughout Europe. Later, uh, the church shifted gears a little bit and instead of burning the books, just instead ordered them to be censored. And there, were, the church had a, an army of of, of individuals, again, many of whom had been Jews that converted to Christianity, who were charged with the censorship of Jewish books. And you had, in some cases, Jews uh, pleading with the church to censor their books because the only other alternative to censorship was burning them. So you had this ironic situation in which censorship was seen as a way of saving Jewish literature rather than mm-hmm. destroying it. Um, uh, so when the Nazis came along, they really had a very different approach to the uh, to the Jewish book. They they saw themselves as the inheritors, in some ways, of this tradition of suspicion of Jewish literature and the Jewish printed word. But they, instead of destroying the books. I mean they they did burn books a little bit they burnt books uh at the very beginning of their reign which we can talk about a little bit more if you're interested but mm-hmm. but from early from early on they the, the their preference overwhelmingly was to save the jewish books to to collect them to steal them to loot them to to uh, hold on to to them um as much as they could so they um they weren't the burners of books nearly as much as they were the collectors of Jewish books, which made them unique in the history of, of anti-Semitism.
1: That's good. Um, so tell us a bit about who Alfred Rosenberg, Heinrich Himmler and, um, Franz Alfred Six were, um, who were they and what were their roles in this mass pillaging of Jewish books? And what were they hoping to achieve? What were the ideas behind, um, Yeah. This activity.
0: Right. So Alfred Rosenberg is a fascinating character. He he had an unlikely name for a Nazi. Rosenberg sounds Mm. Jewish. And there actually there is actually some theory that he might have had some Jewish upbringing. So I mean, some Jewish uh, ancestry, uh, which he vehemently denied, of course, he was. A member of the Nazi party and Hitler's main ideologue. And he was also put in charge as the war progressed of all the conquered territories in, in the eastern part of the Nazi regime. He, um, and, uh, he wrote, he was the author of a book called The Myth of the 20th Century, which was a huge, thick tome of incomprehensible, often anti-Semitic, uh, 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 drivel, if you will. Um, it was, uh, uh, and it was one of the most popular books in Nazi Europe. It was second in sales only to Mein Kampf. Rosenberg was the guy that Hitler turned to for ideological, uh, for his ideological work, and, and for his intellectual, scholarly work. And early in the war. Rosenberg went to Hitler and said, you, you, I know that you've dreamed of building this uh, Hochschule, this higher institute for, uh, for, for study that the, that the Nazi regime was, was hoping to build. Why don't we open, as part of that, why don't we open a series of Jewish research institutes, of, of institutes for the, for the research into the uh, Jewish people. Um, and uh, if we're going to open these institutes, Rosenberg uh, suggested, we're going to need libraries at these institutes. And if we're going to need libraries, we're going to need books. So he requested and received permission from Hitler to start to gather Jewish books. And he gathered them beginning uh, in, in Frankfurt, uh, in Germ- Germany, at the... Um, from the Frankfurt library but then as as the war went on he established what was called the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg the um uh, the the Reichsleiter Rosenberg task force and this was a force that would go into conquered nazi territories uh, to, typically to towns, and we, after the town was emptied of its Jews, the ERR, the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, would go in and would collect all the Jewish books from the synagogues, from the Batim Midrash, the houses of study, from from the other communal libraries, and store them in castles or monasteries or mine shafts or warehouses some somewhere for use in these institutes after the war. Um, it, it was. They looted millions of books this way. Rosenberg, after the war, was captured and tried in the in the in the uh, Nuremberg trials, and he ended up being executed. Uh, Heinrich Himmler was another high-ranking Jewish uh, Nazi leader. Excuse me, a Nazi le- leader who, mm-hmm. um, under his leadership, he unified all of the. Uh, the various Nazi police forces. There were various Nazi, uh, uh, law enforcement and policing organizations, the Gestapo, the SS, the, the uh, other organizations as well. And he united them into the Reichsicherheitsamtamt. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. The Reich security main office led by his, originally led by, um, uh, by by uh, uh, Reinhard Heydrich, one of his main assistants, and they too looted a lot of Jewish material. Uh, the RSHA Reich uh, the RSHA appointed in uh, in charge of its as the person in charge of its looting efforts, uh, Doctor Franz Alfred Six who was um, in charge of Department 7, I believe. So it was Dr. Six in charge of Department Mm -hmm. 7. And he was... um uh, I think it was department seven and, and he was a, uh, a, a, a mid-level, um, uh, Nazi official, a a, scho- a scholar who was uh, put in charge of the RSHA's efforts to loot these books. So you had these two major organizations, the ERR and the RSHA, both looting massive amounts of Jewish books. And there were other organizations within the Nazi regime as well. And it made for just this veritable orgy of Jewish book looting, uh, they resulted in what was what could arguably be called the largest collection of Jewish books in history. And it was the books that were collected by the Nazi regime as they made their way through uh, through Europe, looting and pillaging Jewish communities wherever they could.
1: Mm. So tell us about some of these books um, that were stolen by the Nazis and the diverse Jewish communities that they were taken
0: from. Uh, well, they, they took them from wherever they could find them. Uh, they, and they took all kinds of Jewish books, not only Talmuds and Bibles and even some Torah scrolls, but they took trashy novels and they took children's books and they took, uh, um, uh, you know, really anything they could get their hands on. So for example, some of the, um, some of the libraries had in their collections fragments from the Cairo Geniza which was the subject of the first book i wrote this was a, a massive treasure trove of of um of jewish manuscripts that was discovered in the 1890s in an attic above a synagogue in cairo egypt and uh, there were um collections of manuscripts from this uh, uh from the Cairo Geniza all over europe and some of the material that was looted was uh w- were fragments from the Cairo Geniza, priceless medieval manuscripts that uh, that were really one of a kind um sometimes they were correspondence sometimes they were sacred literature and that was among the material that got looted there was also uh, a fascinating story that we can we re- really tell starting um uh, in the 1990s, when there was an interview, 1990s or early 2000s, uh, there was uh, an interview done with a librarian from Berlin who was telling the interviewer that they had found some looted material from um, the war in their collection, and uh, and they said, "Here, for example, is a book that was a children's activity book." And it was signed to a guy, uh, to a child named um, Wolfgang Wachmann, uh, uh, who, and it was given to him in the, in the 1930s. Uh, well, after that story came out, there was a man named Walter Lachmann in California who got a call from a friend of his saying, Walter, who's Wolfgang Wachman? And he said, well, that's me. That was my name before the war. And it turns out that that Wolfgang, now Walter Lachmann, had lived in Germany before the war. And when the war started, he Uh, He lived with his grandmother. His parents had both died. He lived with his grandmother, and they were deported to the concentration camps, and they had to leave their books behind. And one of the books was Mm -hmm. this activity book that a teacher had given him in one Hanukkah during the 1930s. And the German government gladly... Uh, with great ceremony returned this book to Walter Lachman as soon as they were able to ident- identify that it was his. Um, so there were all kinds of books that were looted, from the pre- precious to the very mundane.
1: Mm. In in Chapter 6, you discuss the resistance to this book, Pillaging. T- tell us a bit about this, and um, particularly about the paper brigade in, in Vilna.
0: So, obviously not all books uh, the Jews didn't give all their books willingly and enthusiastically to the Nazis and when they could they hid their books from the Nazis and one of the most uh, uh, wonderful examples of this one of the most inspirational examples of this was the so called paper brigade which exi- which uh, was a group of people in Vilna which we mentioned earlier um, The the as the war progressed the Nazis looted a lot of material from Vilna and the surrounding area, and they eventually began processing it at the what had been the headquarters of YIVO, the Jewish Scientific Institute. that uh, was outside the the walls of the ghetto in Vilna, and they uh, the person who was in charge, a man named Johannes Pohl, uh, a Nazi scholar of Judaica actually uh, conscripted a, um, a, a group of Jewish laborers from the Vilna ghetto to help him sort through this material. So every day they would troop these um, uh, these Jewish conscripts from the ghetto to the uh, former YIVO headquarters where they would help process these, this material. Mm-hmm. And the people who were conscripted were mainly um, scholars and poets and other Men and women of letters who uh, who were uh, locked up in the ghetto, and some of them had spent a lot of time hanging out at Yivo before the war. Now they were being forced to go there and help the Nazis with their with their Jewish looting project. So they would uh, what Johannes Paul told them to do because there was so much material. They said you can only keep the most valuable twenty percent of it, and the rest of it you you we're gonna. Uh, sent to the pulp mill, and so the 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 people uh, whom he conscripted were told to go through the material, pick out the most valuable twenty percent, and set that aside so that the rest of the material could be destroyed so when these poets and uh, professors and librarians would get a, would get a book put in their hands, their choice was to either have it destroyed or give it to the Nazis and usually they would be able to make the decision but sometimes books would come into their possession into their hands that were so precious that they couldn't stomach either of those alternatives and so when that happened what they would what they started to do was to uh, sneak the books with them back into the ghetto at night for safekeeping mm. and they would um, they would hide them in their homes in one case in an underground cavern that somebody had dug under their home for um, for a sick uh, relative. And so what you would have at the end of the day were these laborers heading back from YIVO into the ghetto with their clothing stuffed full of this, these precious Jewish books. And some of it was very valuable material. Eventually, they realized, and they, and they called themselves the Paper Brigade. And somebody said to them, you know, you're risking your lives and it's just for books. What kind of nuts are you? And one of the members of the paper brigade said, "Well, you you uh, you know these books. They don't just grow on trees. <laughs> um, eventually, they realized that that process was too slow, and they were able during their lunch hour they were able to distract the guard. And while the guard was distracted, they would hide the material in, above the ceilings and in the in in hidden." corners of the YIVO headquarters sadly the YIVO headquarters got bombed out by the end of the war and much of the material was destroyed but they were able to save some of it and what they could save was it was eventually sent um, to the YIVO uh, to the newly uh, um, relocated YIVO headquarters in New York after the the war
1: Mm. you you then discussed the rescue of these books at, at the end of the war Tell us about uh, how this happened, uh, where the books were taken to, and how in this initial stage they were sorted and distributed by the U.S. Army.
0: Right. So um, the the Nazis during the war had stored the books in – Wherever, wherever they could. They stored them in, as I said, in castles and monasteries and mineshafts and all kinds of places. As the war went on and their ter- the size of their territory diminished, much of the material was sent to a couple of very large collecting sites, collection sites. So in Germany, much of the material was sent to the small town of Hungen where uh, where there were, um, uh, where they were able to store millions of volumes in the castle and the surrounding. Building buildings there was another uh, uh, city in Poland called Radibor, where similarly they stored a lot of the material that had been in the east after the war ended the Nazis discovered these and many and and the other uh, storage uh, spots that the Nazis had had chosen, and the material that was in the American zone, at at least, was sent to um, a collection depot that that, um, uh, was eventually called the Collection Depot in Offenbach, just across the Main River from Frankfurt. And the Offenbach Archival Depot was a warehouse that before the war had belonged to the, um, and I'm blanking on the name of the chemical company, Uh, The IG Farben chemical company Mm. that uh, ironically had manufactured, among other things, some of the component parts of Zyklon B gas that was used Mm. to kill Jews during the war. But now one of their warehouses was being used to house looted Jewish books and other cultural items from the war. Um, The... um, and, and the, this, uh, Offenbach archival depot was run by the United States Army. And there was a man, the original director was an Orthodox Jewish archivist named Seymour Pomrans who hired a staff of Germans. Uh, and now it was a, it was a nice Jewish boy from Chicago and later from the Bronx who was in charge of of this material, and it was the Germans who were working for him, helping to sort through it. And um, there was a huge amount of material. Some of it was identifiable, and they knew w- who had owned it before the war. And if it was a um, uh, if it was a, uh, uh, a, a, con- a a country that you know some sort of a federal library, uh, they were able to. Re- Turned huge collections of, of some of this material to these various libraries pretty quickly. Some of the material was unidentifiable, and they had to put that aside to try to figure out well what to do with this material. If they couldn't, if either they they couldn't figure out who owned it, or if they knew who owned it, but it was owned by a a private collector who might have been killed during the war, or who had otherwise vanished, they had to set that aside. Some of it was semi-identifiable. They had a general idea of where it came from. And then they spent a lot of time trying to figure out who had owned this material during the war. So um, uh, the the American Army, ironically, was the first group in charge of trying to redistribute this material after the war ended. It quickly, it became very political because you had uh, – and it was it was mainly the worldwide Jewish community who made the question as to what to do with this material into such a political question, because you had Jews in the soon to be created state of Israel right after the war saying we 're the capital of the Jewish people. We have a fine university, Hebrew University. the books should go the unidentifiable material should go to the Hebrew University library, and you had Jews in the United States saying, "Our community is the largest Jewish community in the world now the the unidentifiable material should come to uh, libraries in the United States, the Library of Congress, and the university libraries, and other such places. And then you had this, the survivors who had decided to stay in Europe, saying that the material material should stay at home. And so uh, the the argument grew more and more vociferous, and the poor American army was caught in the middle of the conflict between these bickering Jews. Um, eventually the uh the occupation the american occupation of germany ended effectively in the late 1940s and they turned the material over to jewish cultural reconstruction this group of of um of historians that that i mentioned earlier who were um designed to take the remaining material and figure out what to do with it
1: Hmm. well yeah that leads into my next question which is yes what what precisely was jewish cultural reconstruction um what work did they do and uh, also what was the role of of Hannah Arendt in this organization
0: so Jewish cultural so as this debate raged as to what to do with the material, the person who rose to the forefront was a man named Salo Baron, a, a very prominent European-born uh, Jewish historian who was then serving at Columbia University. He was known by many as the father of, of Jewish studies in, in America. You know, academic the academic field of Jewish studies in America, and he assembled a worldwide team of Jewish historians and librarians and other scholar, scholars that eventually succeeded in. Being uh, in in receiving this material, the unidentifiable, non-returnable material, or uh, not not non-returnable, but the material that remained that had hadn't yet been prep been processed by the Offenbach Archival Depot. They re- received all this material after the American occupation of Germany ended, and they they took the mantle of redistributing it from there, and they. Um, they worked hard to feed, to return the material to its rightful owners. And when they couldn't figure out who the rightful owners were, they eventually developed a formula, a 40-40-20 formula. 40% of the material went to um, uh, Israel, predominantly to the Hebrew University. 40% of the material went to libraries in the United States. And the remaining 20% of the material went to libraries elsewhere, to uh, places like Canada and South Africa and Argentina in places like that. Um, uh, Hannah Arendt was, for a couple of years, was the director of the um, Jewish Cultural Reconstruction's activities on the ground in germany she went to germany she supervised the day-to-day operations of the organization and was particularly influential in in routing out some of the remaining material that uh, hadn't been yet turned over that hadn't been turned over to the allies or until she was able to get to it nor had it been turned over to jewish cultural reconstruction but she was able to identify Collections of material that, that hadn't that they hadn 't gotten their hands on yet and and she was able to um, to successfully obtain that material and and uh, either get it back to its original owners or put it into the forty forty twenty uh, operation that that uh, that distributed the remaining material
1: mm. so, so where are these books now and um, also what do you see as the importance of Knowing um, this history, the history of what happened to these books?
0: Well, th- uh, two very good questions. Where are the books now? In a word, they're everywhere. Um, a few of them are just a few feet away from me now as we speak here in my library. Uh, they are in libraries all over the world. You can, they, they come up for sale regularly in places like eBay and other places. And in fact, I think you can go on eBay now and find a couple of books that, that have the Jewish Cultural Reconstruction book plate in them. Um, and, uh, some of the material, the material that was in the former Soviet Union after the war, much of that Sort of melted into the collections of the of the Soviet Union, and for that matter, the books that came here to the United States were kind of scattered throughout collections of, um, uh, of libraries here in in the United States and Canada and elsewhere so they 're in libraries all over the place. I was in Jerusalem uh, uh so about a year ago, and I was in a bookstore, and I found one of the books that had been looted. This had a stamp on the inside from the e r r from the Einstein Later Rosenberg, mm. so you can find them everywhere and uh and they keep on turning up. So, um, so that's where they are now. They have been, they hmm. scattered through, you know, after the war, they, like the Jewish people, scattered from Europe all over the world. Some of them remained in Europe. Many of them came to the United States and Israel. And, you know, it's interesting because in the books, you have a very parallel story, uh, in the books of the Holocaust to what happened with the people of the Holocaust. They were often hidden. In uh, hiding places throughout Europe, they were uh, discovered, often sent to a central collecting point given a cursory examination. Uh, Many of them after that cursory examination were destroyed. The few that survived had a chance of making it through the war, and those that did make it through the war are now scattered throughout the the world everywhere, just like the the Jewish people. why is it important to understand this story? Well, first of all, when you hold one of these books in your hand, you're holding on to one of the few remaining physical connections that we have with the, with the, uh, with the world that Hitler largely succeeded in destroying. You, you have one of the few remaining physical connections to the world before the war. And so as I hold in my hands, um my book of Alfasi that set me on this Odyssey to begin with. I'm holding in my in my hands the very same book that was studied and poured over by students for a couple of centuries before Hitler's henchmen got got their grubby hands on it. And um uh and, and so the 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 connection that these books build um uh, or create for us is a truly impressive one and an, an important one and the other reason is that uh, we in you know we invest so much meaning and so much um, uh, so many memories in our books the books when you page through an old book book you're paging through the very same piece of paper that other people have perused and read and 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 studied and and derived meaning or, stu- or from or learned great stories from and um uh this these books are the history of our people and the fact that they that that some of them survived and ma- many of them sur- survived is a testament to the um to the 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 survival power that these printed words have, the words on the sheet of paper uh, are in Judaism are holy, and um, uh, and so we by learning their story we learn the history of our people, and we learn of the the indestructibility of an idea once it makes it onto a piece of paper.
1: That's great. Uh, well, thanks very much for um, talking to us about. Uh, your um, really fascinating and and important book. Um, Before we let you go, um, would you be able to tell us um, what you're working on next?
0: Well, I have an idea to write a book. The working title is "Shmoozing in Babel, Hebrew, Yiddish, Ladino, Krimchak, judeo Malayalam, and 28 other languages of the Jewish people. Uh, Mm. It turns out there are dozens and dozens of Jewish languages that uh, very few of us have heard of. We've heard of Hebrew and Yiddish and Ladino, but Krimchak, which which is a a Judeo-Crimean language, and, uh, very few people have heard of that. Judeo Arabic used to be the most widely spoken language amongst the Jewish people. Uh, there was Judeo Persian, Judeo Greek. Uh, some people even suggest there's a language called Judeo English. Um, and so I'm, I am uh, I, w- I would love to write a book on that. Uh, uh, and uh, if the circumstances of my life will allow for it, I'm going to do just that. Right now, uh, I'm newly serving uh, my congregation here in Cal- Calgary, so I've had to put that aside. But when uh, when my time frees itself up, I'm looking forward to uh, turning to a book on Jewish languages.
1: Well, that sounds like a really great project, and yes, we hope to have you Uh, on the show again one day um, to discuss it.
0: Thank you very (laughs) much. I would love to do that.
1: Great. Uh, Well, thanks very much for um, being with us. Uh, So you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, With us today, we had Rabbi Mark Glickman. Um, He talked to us about his new book, Stolen Words, The Nazi Plunder of Jewish Books, published in 2016 by the Jewish Publication Society in association with the University of Nebraska Press. Thanks very much.